is look at me to know that every word is true. Elaine Page there singing Don't Cry For Me, Argentina from Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice's Evita. A very warm welcome to Fine Music Radio on this Friday evening and to the penultimate episode of Great Interpreters Goes Broadway. My name is Adrian Fuchs, your host for the series in which we celebrate the great dames of musical theatre. Over the course of the last six weeks, we've profiled the Broadway babies broads and belters that have lit up the Broadway and West End stage and thrilled us in movie musicals on the silver screen, from the brassy belting of Ethel Merman to the sassy, subtle art of Bernadette Peters. Next week, our final program in the series will be dedicated to Patti Lapone, regarded by many as the last of the great Broadway dames. But, as you probably guessed, tonight the spotlight falls on the first lady of the British musical theatre, Elaine Page. A 4 foot 11 inch powerhouse performer, Page's extraordinary show business career spans 50 years. She was the first actress to play the iconic roles of Eva Peron in Evita, Grisabella in Cats and Florence in Chess, and has arguably appeared in more West End and Broadway musicals than any other performer of her generation. Her list of roles is impressive. Aside from the aforementioned Evita, Cats and Chess, it includes appearances in Hair, Jesus Christ Superstar, Billy, Anything Goes, Piaf, Sunset Boulevard, The King and I, Sweeney Todd, The Drowsy Chaperone, and last but not least, Follies. What's more, Paige has appeared in television and film, has thrilled audiences in concerts worldwide, appearing in such venues as the White House, the Great Hall of the People in Beijing, the Bolshoi Theatre in Moscow and the Sydney Opera House, has recorded 21 solo albums and earned eight consecutive gold and four multi-platinum discs, and has achieved chart-topping hits including Memory, Don't Cry For Me Argentina and I Know Him So Well, which have become her signatures. She also has a highly successful, long-running show on BBC Radio 2, has been nominated for five Olivier Awards, received an OBE, and even been named Rear of the Year. Before we continue with tonight's show, a reminder that you can listen again or download a podcast for future listening on my website On and Off the Record, www.onandofftherecord.com. That's www.onandofftherecord.com. Alternatively, you can download a podcast of tonight's show from iTunes. And if you have any queries, questions or comments about tonight's program, please do reach out to me via email as I am unfortunately not in the studio to take your calls. My email address is adrian at onandofftherecord.com. 
you can also contact me via the On and Off the Record Facebook page. But now, on with tonight's show. Elaine Page was born on March 5, 1948, in Barnet, North London, the youngest of two daughters. Her father, Eric Bickerstaff, was an estate agent and amateur drummer, while her mother, Irene, was a milliner and had been a singer in her youth. She had a beautiful singing voice, Page noted. I inherited my voice from her. Here is Page in an interview with Michael Parkinson, taken from an episode of the BBC's Desert Island Discs, recorded in 1987. Elaine Page, what kind of background did you come from? What did your parents do? Was there any showbiz in the family? Well, only in an amateur way, really. My father still plays the drums, and um, my mother has sung. They both were involved in concert party during the war. So in that sense, there's theatre and music in the family. But uh, by profession, my father was an estate agent, and my mother is a milliner. So where do you get, you, you get your ambitions from, then? Because I, one assumes, looking at your career, that you, you had an ambition from a very early age. Well, to... I don't know that I did, really. I mean, it, it was something that uh, my family and I, both together, seemed to discover, really. No, it wasn't an ambition that I had very early on. In fact, I, the one ambition I had, I wanted to be a tennis player. That's what I remember quite clearly. <laughs> and, of course, the headmistress at my school said to me, well, that's hopeless, Elaine, because you're far too small, you can't see over the net. And she was actually <laughs> absolutely <laughs> quite right about that. But I didn't see why that. That should stop me being a great tennis player, but still, um... Paige recalled that her childhood was wonderful, but as far removed from the bright lights of the West End as one could imagine. The family lived in a flat above a greengrocer's on the high street. There was mum and dad and my elder sister Marion, with my grandparents and my aunts and uncles all living close by, she noted. It was a very secure, very simple suburban life. Yet despite a happy family background, Paige, who is only 4 foot 11 inches tall, was constantly teased and bullied at school because of her height. She also had, by her own account, awful brown, mousy, frizzy hair, and as a result, was ignored by boys. Growing up, she was deeply insecure. Here is Paige in a 2009 interview with Alex Belfield, recorded for Celebrity Radio. What were you like as a child? Um, Oh, gosh. Um, Well, short. (laughs) Nothing much has changed there. (laughs) Um, I always... uh, I had... uh, I'd still have very curly hair, so my hair was sort of frizzy. Um, I always thought of myself as rather plain. Paige's escape, however, was music. Singing in assembly at school, at church and listening to records including the soundtrack of West Side Story as a teenager, which evoked in her a love of the musical theatre and a desire for a career on the stage. What I loved about acting is that I could disappear and be someone else, she noted. I didn't have to be me. I was never very confident as Elaine. I think the first time I realised that I could sing and that I enjoyed it was at school. Um, in those days, uh, I don't know if they still do, but we used to have a, a, a morning assembly every day, uh, which meant that um, the staff would stand on the stage in front of the gathered uh, children in the assembly hall and um, we would, you know, have a religious service, I suppose. Um, I went to a Church of England school and um, and we would say prayers and sing hymns. 
something that I still love. I I still have many favourite hymns, and uh, uh, I keep thinking I'm going to do an album of such at some point, uh, sing, sing sing an album of carols and hymns and things. I've just come up with that. That would be a good idea, wouldn't it? <laughs> anyway, that's for later. But now, anyway. because you said that on my programme, do I have the copyright? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, edit. <laughs> anyway, I'm twittering on. What was I saying? So, yeah, that's how I first knew I could sing, was in the assembly hall at school. And I was uh, rather teased for it, actually, because, like a lot of people, I think, uh, they think they can't sing. And um, so a lot of my contemporaries used to send me up and tease me about it. And they'd say, you go on, sing out, Bic, you know, go on, girl, <laughs> sing out, Louise, and all of that. And I was always teased for it. But uh, I never minded it. I just thought, well, I don't care. I love to sing. And uh, and I did indeed really enjoy to sing. And I think uh, my music teacher, Anne Hill, her name was, Recognise that I had some kind of a voice and uh, she would give me the odd solo in the school choir things that we would do at end of term. So that's really how I discovered that I had a voice at all and that, uh, and that I enjoyed to sing. So thanks to Anne Hill. And what happened next? What was the moment when you thought, OK, if I get training and I have some discipline, this could be my future? Well, I think it came after uh, an end-of-term production directed by the music teacher, Anne Hill, and it was a a sort of a musical, a potpourri, if you like, um, all the hits of Mozart. And, uh, I mean, it sounds... I mean, she had a vision, this woman, and uh, but it was a fantastic production, and it really was all the famous tunes uh, that Mozart had ever written and, and had been, you know, from various uh, operas that he'd written. And I played the role of Susanna. And I had a, a marvellous aria to sing of lost love and, you know, tragedy. (laughs) I think this was the beginning of my career of singing all these songs that, um, you know, are rather sad and depressing and and, uh, emotional and and tragic. And, um, And I remember quite clearly, I was probably about... 13 or 14 years old and and it was my first uh, acting role I suppose as well in this musical and uh, and while singing the song at the end of the aria I it was in the script that one that she had to break down in tears and so acting my socks off there I was with all the all the parents sitting there watching their children in this end of term production I broke down at the appropriate point in the, in the aria and I remember to this day, hearing a gasp uh, through the uh, assembled uh, parents. And I think they all thought, oh, poor child, she's broken down and forgotten the words and she's crying, oh, dear. And, of course, I I thought, well, didn't they know I was acting? (laughs) Uh, Thankfully, I think my father, my parents did. and, um, And it was after that that my father had said to me, would you like to go to drama school? And I couldn't believe that somebody had asked me if I wanted to do something like that. I just thought, wow, that would just be the best thing in the world, to spend all my days singing and dancing and acting, and wouldn't that just be the best? Because I knew already at school that I loved to to do these rehearsals for these end-of-term productions. I'd much rather be doing that than learning history and geography and maths in particular. I hated. And... um, 
and would steal out of class and make up terrible fibs <laughs> and tell the, the schoolmistress that I'd been given permission to go off and rehearse my end-of-term song, which was, of course, a pack of lies. But uh, And I always managed to get away with it somehow. So I obviously was a natural actor. <laughs> and, uh, um, and that's how it all began. And, of course, I took my father's offer up... up thrilled as I was and went off to Ada Foster's stage school uh, when I left school at the age of 15. I was just 16 when I went and I did a three-year drama students course there. Page there in an interview with Alex Belfield recorded in 2009 for Celebrity Radio. At the Ida Foster Theatre School, Page initially felt like a fish out of water, surrounded by students from well-to-do backgrounds acting out Chekhov and Shakespeare. They were all highly motivated people, brash, outgoing and confident, she noted. I was the complete opposite. I found that dynamic hard to fit into and I retreated into myself even more. They were so far removed from the suburban barnet, I found it difficult because I didn't seem to have the necessary bravado. Quite a lot of that had to do with my height. Being a small person, you don't view life in quite the same way. With the encouragement and support of her parents, Paige endured and she grew to enjoy her time at theatre school. By the time she graduated from Ida Foster, she was, as she says, completely and utterly hooked on the life that was to become her career. After graduation, Paige's first professional appearance on stage came in 1964 during the UK tour of the Anthony Newley, Leslie Bricus musical The Roar of the Grease Paint, The Smell of the Crowd, in which she played the role of a Chinese street urchin. To audition for the role, she sang I'm Just a Girl Who Can't Say No, but unfortunately she was rejected. Whilst I was at Ada Foster, I was sent for my very first audition and I forgot the words or something, I dried. And so my agent rang me and said, I know you can get this part, you must go back. And to do that, you must have another name. I said, well, you're mad, they've, they've seen me, they'll know they've seen me. No, give me another name. So my real name is Bickerstaff. Got it? <laughs> and uh, so I was desperately trying to think of another name, and I couldn't. So I started to look through the family phone book, and... Uh, hoping something, a name, would jump up at me. Of course, it didn't. And I suddenly realised what I was doing, sort of flicking the pages across. And I suddenly thought, oh, Elaine Page. And I said it a few times to myself, and it seemed to sort of go together. So that's how I came by the name Elaine Page. That was for the roar of the grease paint. Elaine Page there in an interview recorded for the TV special Ladybirds in 1983. On September 27, 1968, at the age of 20, Page made her West End debut as a chorus member in Hair, remaining in the cast until March 1970. Hair, the revolutionary 60s musical that has been described as a hippy-dippy pine to free love, caused a considerable stir with its references to drugs, profanity, masturbation, and most notoriously, its nude scene. All of a sudden, noted Ben Lawrence in The Telegraph, that nice suburban girl from Barnet found herself on the fringes of the countercultural revolution. It was different and exciting, noted Page. We were breaking down the walls of what had gone before, 
Of course I went wild. While as wild as someone from Barnet can. I took drugs. I stripped naked every night as part of the show. This was 1968, and there was a worldwide revolution going on. We were youngsters fighting against the establishment. We were experimenting, and I went along with it like everyone else. In addition to Jesus Christ Superstar, Page played roles in various musicals over the course of the next decade, including Nuts, Grease, in which he played the lead role of Sandy from 1973 to 1974, Belly from 1974 to 1975 playing Rita, and The Boyfriend as Macy from 1975 to 1976. Elaine, as I said in the introduction there, I mean, all those are parts that any other actress would die for. Has it been luck or good management, do you think? <laughs> I think, uh, I have to say, luck, probably, and a lot of hard work and... Just a matter of uh, persevering, really, because very early on in my career I found that I would go up for auditions and uh, I always managed somehow or other to get down to the last two or three. Inevitably, I would then get the big elbow and uh, somehow didn't seem to quite get the job. I mean, a lot of those that you've mentioned, the early ones anyway, were very much uh, chorus Yes, but nonetheless you were in them, and nonetheless they had a significant part in the development of Oh, absolutely, yes. You can't start at the top. I mean, you've got to learn, and, and that's how I learnt, really, through being in the shows rather than uh, at drama school, although I was at drama school for uh, three years. Page there talking to Michael Parkinson during an episode of the BBC's Desert Island Discs, recorded in 1987. But apart from these small roles and sporadic jobs... Page's career was pretty much flatlining. Since making her West End debut ten years prior in Hair in 1968, she had not landed the kind of big, juicy part that she had been hoping to sink her teeth into. To pay the bills, she even had a minor role in the 1978 sex comedy film Adventures of a Plumber's Mate. I was fed up with the whole thing, Page admits. I couldn't get the parts I wanted. I couldn't afford new clothes, I had holes in my boots, I couldn't go out to eat. I was coming up to age 29 and I thought I wasn't good enough. I felt I should be doing something more substantial. I decided I'd give it another year and if, by age 30, I hadn't made a bit more of a mark, I'd pack it up. I was seriously considering becoming a nursery school nurse. Then, one night at a party, Paige met Dustin Hoffman who was in the UK filming Agatha with Vanessa Redgrave. We fell to talking and he asked me what I did, remembers Paige. I told him I was an out-of-work actor who sang a bit. I was trying to make my way in the business, but it was proving difficult, not least because I was so short. That seemed to hit a chord with him, and he started telling me how he overcame his own lack of height. Paige also confided to Hoffman that she hated auditioning in the morning and that her voice only came alive in the afternoon. He then persuaded her to make the demand that, when called for a role, she would only audition after lunch. When you go for auditions, he told Paige, go for the time of day that suits you best. Sing what you want to sing, not what they want you to sing, and don't forget that you are doing this for you. About a year later, Page was invited to audition for the role of Eva Perón, the wife of former Argentine president Juan Perón, in Angeloid Webber and Tim Rice's rock opera Evita. 
Remembering Hoffman's advice, she held her nerve and auditioned for Evita only when she was ready. When Lloyd Webber, Rice and the producers asked to see her at 10am, Paige would say no, she would prefer 2pm. Later, when it came down to her and three other actresses and she was called for a last-minute audition, she again remembered Hoffman's advice. No, she told them, it'll have to be the next day at 2. Here is Paige talking about Evita in an extract from an interview recorded for the TV special Ladybirds in 1983. Hard times? Oh yes, I've had plenty of those. I think the year prior to Evita must take the cake. It was disaster. Everything went wrong. I couldn't get any work. My car wouldn't start. It was awful. And towards the end of that year, I met Dustin Hoffman and uh, he enthused and, and encouraged me a great deal. He writes music and loves to play the piano and he'd just written a song with Bette Midler and asked if I would sing it. So we rehearsed it together and, and I sang it and he said to me, oh, you must stick with it, you know, do keep at it, your number will come up. That was that, off I went and rehearsed to my Barbara Streisand records every day and felt a lot better about life in general. And the next thing I knew, I was auditioning for Evita. And I think I did four auditions altogether, the last one being just before Easter. So it meant that I had to wait from Good Friday right through to Monday to hear whether or not I got it. And it was awful, the waiting was agony. But of course I heard in the end that I had got it. And the next time I saw Dustin, I think, was on the opening night of the show. And he came to see it, unbeknown to me. And he was sitting in the audience, watching the show, looking at me. And he told me this later. Who is that person? I'm, she looks so familiar to me. But he, he, couldn't rec he didn't recognize me under the wigs. In the end, he asked the woman next to him who I was, and she told him. Of course, the penny dropped. And after the show, he was the first one back to see me in the dressing room. And he said to me, you got there, didn't you? Paige's ballsy gamble paid off. And at the age of 29, she beat out scores of other actresses, including Faye Dunaway, Shirley MacLaine and Liza Minnelli for the coveted role of Eva Perron in Evita. Without the advice from Hoffman a year earlier, Paige believed that she may never have landed the role. He was passionate about what he said was my talent, Paige recalled. It's fair to say he was instrumental in giving me back faith in myself. Without him, I might have become a nursery school nurse and married, perhaps with children of my own. So I owe him an enormous debt, because whatever parts I subsequently played, Evita remains the defining role of my career. Indeed, Evita turned Paige into an overnight star. It was the show that changed my life, overnight, she stated. I hadn't wanted to take on another musical. I had just told my agent I wanted to concentrate on serious acting. But when the Evita LP came out, she said I should listen to it. The part was perfect for me. I rushed out and bought it and saw exactly what she meant. Ava was a wonderful actress, strong, forceful, but with a vulnerable side. I just had to play her. The rehearsals were intense and the score was very challenging. 
we were attempting something completely new for British musicals. Usually, they have a book, meaning dialogue between songs, but Evita was all sung. It was more like a tragic opera. And Halprince was determined to do something different with the staging as well. The first production had no set, just a black box we all had to step on and off, plonking down chairs. I'll never forget the opening night of Evita, Paige remembers. When I left the stage, the audience began chanting, Evita, Elaine. I'd just reached my dressing room, up two flights of stairs, when the manager had to call me down. I stood in the wings, unable to believe what was happening. He had to push me back on stage. Afterwards, we had the most fantastic party on the Thames, in a boat. There was champagne and all the glitterati from the industry came. At 1am, someone went to buy the next day's papers and there was my face splashed across all of the front pages. And of course, the ending to the Dustin Hoffman story is that he was there that first night, Paige confided. He escorted me to the party. So... What did it do? Did you have to audition for multiple Evita? times for Evita? Absolutely. I think every show I've ever managed to get into, I've auditioned multiple times, hmm. usually around uh, seven or eight times, and nothing was any different with uh, Evita. That was a, a long, arduous process that uh, began and seemed to go on and on and on for months and months and months, uh, concluding with... Uh, I think there were three of us that were left on the list. An American uh, girl by the name of Bonnie Schoen was flown over to England um, for this final audition and another young lady by the name of Verity Ann Meldrith and my, Meldrin and myself. And we were all um, shoved into this dressing room at the Palace Theatre in London and... Uh, one by one, ushered out onto the stage. And I can remember sitting there looking at my watch, checking the time of everybody that they both went out before me and seeing how long they got. <laughs> then I went out and uh, did my final audition. And uh, every time I went, I think I was asked to... I sang my own choice of song, which was Yesterday, uh, The Beatles' Yesterday, which I... Did chose to do as a dramatic uh, ballad, really, rather than as a pop song in the in the manner that they had written it, um, and uh, and I think Andrew had asked me to sing "Learn uh, Don't Cry for Me Argentina," which after the eighth time of of singing, it became you know oh, not again because it's a rather long song, <laughs> but um, anyway, and then one would have to be put through one's paces in terms of dance and movement. And uh, and then, yeah, I mean, I was I can't believe it still today. And as I write in the book, so many people were uh, up for that role. It was a coveted part worldwide. I mean, uh, Raquel Welsh, uh, you know, I mean, Faye Dunaway, Liza Minnelli, everyone, Shirley MacLaine. I mean, big, big names were up for this role. And, uh, of course, as I say, it was a truly coveted uh, part and nobody could have been more surprised than me when I finally won that role. It really was truly, it changed my life. You describe it as opera, yet it was really a very small show. There are only, I think, five principal roles and a chorus in Avida. So you've already spoken about the fact that just auditioning and singing Don't Cry for Me Argentina a number of times was tiring. How long did you do the show for? How, and, and what was your stamina through it? Well, 
you know, this is one of the things that I'm thankful that I've come up through the ranks, if you like, because when you do that, you learn about things, about technique and about stamina and about the, the very things that you need to know about to be able to, to sustain eight shows a week for a lengthy period. Um, in the end, it was decided that I would only sing six shows a week because it was so terribly demanding and it was truly like an opera in terms of having to sing that score because it was a huge score and, and the role of Evita, she's hardly ever off stage at all and no opera singer I've ever met has ever sung more than maybe three performances in a in the space of ten days, let alone every day. Um, so it was difficult, of course, but I was young, you know, and I had, uh, I had learned a technique. Uh, I knew how to take care of my voice and I uh, basically lived the life of a nun. I didn't do anything <laughs> I, other than sleep and eat and take care of myself and, and pretty much be silent most days. But a nun who had just become a superstar in the West End because for all of your prior work, nothing approached the role and the show the that's way that's right well that's the difficulty you see that one had to uh, everybody wanted a piece i had to to go to interviews i had to do photo sessions i you know had to entertain in my dressing room sometimes for an hour <laughs> and longer after the show um you know there were lots of other demands of course other than playing the role and that was one of the things that i found most difficult uh, of all really was i wanted to play the part i wanted to to, play, to do the work, but all the peripheral, all the other stuff that goes with it, I have to say, took me a long, long time, probably years, to to learn to adapt and to come to terms with that. But I played the show, actually, for the longest I've ever been in any one uh, piece, and it was uh, 20 months hmm. altogether. Page there in that 2010 interview recorded for the American Theatre Wing. Fame was the most horrible shock it was ghastly, Paige admitted, of her overnight success in Evita. Nothing could have been further from what I wanted. All the years of being a struggling actress does not prepare you. Now it's part of my life, but it took me years to accept it. I hated the lack of privacy, and people were forever asking me my opinion on things like Argentinian politics, which I knew nothing about. But even if Paige may not have been well-versed on Argentinian politics, she could do no wrong as far as the critics and audiences were concerned. For her performance in Evita, she won the Laurence Olivier Award for Best Performance in a Musical, which at that time was called the Society of West End Theatre Award. She also won the Variety Club Award for Show Business Personality of the Year. Here is Tim Rice, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Elaine Page in an interview taken from a special 1996 episode of the South Bank show titled The Faces of Elaine Page. Now the winner is, oh my nerves, Evita. If we hadn't had Elaine, we might well not have had such a big hit. It might have been something that worked for a bit or who knows, you can't tell. Um, I can only say that there have been plenty of other people playing Evita over the years, and I've often thought, I'm really glad they didn't open it. I think in, in, in Evita, the one thing that she really brought to the whole thing was that there was something of a resonance with what we imagined Ava Perron to be like. I felt that I wanted to play her in a positive 
way um, as a sincere woman who was very passionate and probably naive. But perhaps the greatest compliment paid to Paige for her portrayal of Evita came in 2011 when, during an interview, Piers Morgan asked Andrew Lloyd Webber what his favourite moment in his life was outside of personal events like love, marriage and children. Lloyd Webber immediately answered, Elaine Page, opening night of Evita in London. Here is Page singing Rainbow High from Evita with music by Andrew Lloyd Webber and lyrics by Tim Rice. I don't really think I need the reasons why I won't succeed. I have done. Let's get this show on the road. Let's make it obvious. Head on is up and rolling. After her success on the West End, the plan was that Paige would reprise her role in Evita on Broadway, but in 1978, US Equity refused to give the part to a Brit, a decision that would ultimately launch the career of Patti Lupone. It must have seemed nearly impossible to follow Evita with an equal success, but Paige did exactly that when she made the role of Grizabella in Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats, a musical based on T.S. Eliot's Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, her own. 
Let's listen to an extract from an interview with Page recorded in 2010 for the American Theatre Wing. Moving on to another blockbuster show, you ended up in Cats by accident. By default, yeah. Not an accident of yours, but I was surprised to find Judy Dench was going to play Grisabella mm-hmm. and severed her Achilles tendon. That's correct. And so how much time did you have? I mean, were they already in rehearsal? A moment in time. Uh, no, again, it, was, it seems to be something to do, you know, like with the same with hair. I, w- I missed out on the entire... I think they rehearsed for something like months, I don't know, eight weeks or something. Everybody's learning how to be cats. Yes, learning how to be cats. They're writing the show as they go along. They're changing things. They're trying out songs and then ditch it and so on. So it was a real creative process. Trevor Nunn, of course was directing and uh, and Trevor had been very used to working with the RSC and, and the National Theatre whereby they have months and months of very slow and you know intricate rehearsal periods so he was used to that and somehow had managed to um, you know that that was the case with with this musical with Cats and I was nothing to do with it I hadn't been asked to, to play the, the role or, or be in it a, at all on any level and one night I was coming home from uh, a dinner party and the, the DJ on the radio said it's midnight I shall play the rest of Andrew Lloyd Webber's new theme from Cats after the midnight news and I jumped out of the car because I'd heard the, the first few bars and it did something to me physically it touched me in such a way and I went to run to my door to to go into my house to tape it because in those days we had cassette tapes and this rather bedraggled black thin disgusting poor creature cat was sort of walking toward me and i tried to my mother always said let a black cat pass your pass in front of you it's meant to bring good luck and i had been out of evita now for at least six months i was beginning to think i was a you know one hit wonder the cat I managed to get it across me. I ran into the house, taped the music, and made a pact with myself that I was going to ring Andrew the next day and say, I have to record it, even though I'm nothing to do with the show. Please let me... I was going to beg, you know, anything. Mm. And, of course, I didn't have to because Cameron rang me and said that Judy had injured herself and they were in trouble because they were about to open... This was like a Thursday, and they were about to open in preview on the Monday. So we had... I had from... Thursday night, after I'd met Andrew and Trevor and discussed it and agreed to do it, I literally had from Thursday night to Monday to learn it. I mean, learn the whole show, to find out what it was all about. I had no idea. I mean, it had been behind locked doors for several weeks. Nobody knew what the show was going to be about. Yet, you say learn the whole show, in contrast to Evita, which was like running a marathon. Right. Cats, the role of Grisabella, you lurk around the fringes, but basically, you come in well, late was, in the show that's and right. then well, blow was the everybody away. Number. You know, we were all involved in this rather long, I don't know, could have been a four or five minute dance routine, the very opening number. And in that, I was meant to be the kitten. Uh, 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 you know, that. But, but of course, I mean, it sounds like nothing. But when you don't know what the show is about at all or have any inkling, it was, uh, it was quite something to go into. Again, it was, you know, it was like Disney, uh, this Disney-esque. Um, it was a cross between Disney and, and you know, it was just the most extraordinary, uh, innovative show. Here I was again, in, in, in involved in something that was, it had not, the likes of which had never been seen at the time. Now we all kind of think, oh yeah, cats, you know. But then, oh, no, it, was, it, it was huge. It was the must-see show. And the, so the unusual, I mean... Yeah. 
you know so uh and and then trevor had to take time out to to work with me one afternoon which is what he did i think we worked for three hours on on this character who she is what she where she come from what it was all about i mean it was the most extraordinary thing and of course for me the difficulty really was uh, we had 10 days of previews and every single night i would be given a different lyric to sing mm. so um that that's pretty difficult trying to re- remember a new lyric every night forgive the pun but uh, <laughs> in the end uh, as i say it was a bit of a feat of memory to remember <laughs> the lyrics on a nightly basis but eventually they uh, interestingly the the first word in the end that we settled on you know was tr- it's trevor nunn's lyric that he took from the essence of the idea of uh, T.S. Eliot's poem, Rhapsody on a Windy Night, and the first night is midnight, and that was the time that I heard the DJ say it was mm. the first time I ever heard the, the melody at all. So I think, ooh, there's always a bit, something a bit spooky about that. Hmm. Remarkable. Page played Grizabella in the West End from May 1981 to February 1982 and later reprised the role of Grizabella for the video release of Cats in 1998, one of only two performers in the film from the original London cast, the other one being Susan Jane Tanner as Jelly Lorem. Cats would of course go on to become one of the most successful musicals of all time, and Paige became indelibly linked to the song Memory, which became her signature tune. Her recording of the song, from the original West End cast recording of the show, became a top 10 hit, reaching number 5 in the UK charts. It has also reportedly become one of the most requested funeral songs. Here is Paige discussing the song Memory in an interview with Alex Belfield, recorded in 2009 for Celebrity Radio. Cats had that wonderful song Memory and uh, being the first to have sung that on stage or anywhere at all was a uh, an absolute thrill and uh, and remains still amazingly after the thousands of times that I must have sung it on stage in various concerts all over the world I still love it so much and uh, because it it really has got that wonderful melody and it's dramatic and passionate and and I never really tire of singing it which I can't quite believe but it's true I find a and I think also because of the years since I sang it in the early 80s, uh, uh, Cats was, of course, 81. Um, I think with life experience, it perhaps uh, has more depth to it now than it did when I initially sang it, or I'd like to think so anyway. How do you balance the emotion of the song with getting through it yourself? Well, of course, you know, that's part of the art and craft of learning... uh, to sing uh, songs um, you you have to invest your own experience life experience and uh, into the emotion of the song and tell the tell the story but at the same time um, you have to remember a certain amount of technique there's a technique involved as well um, you can't just allow yourself to physically break down you can't really completely go there to that 
place, otherwise you wouldn't be able to sing. Although I can remember a few years ago doing a concert tour in Scandinavia and a, a fan of mine, he died, and his mother came in his place to see me in concert. And she came down to the front of the stage at the end of the concert in tears and said to me, you, you will sing Memory, won't you? You haven't sung it yet, because I off obviously leave it to the end of the concert. And I said, of course, and... Uh, you know, she told me who she was and what had, I knew what had happened because uh, she'd written to me. So I dedicated the song to the young man. It was the hardest thing to do because uh, to sing it after having made this dedication to him because uh, all I could think about was him and and what this song was saying. And uh, so that so it can be very difficult. And in fact. I'm often asked, I have been, over the years to sing at close friends' funerals and things like that. It's terrible. I have to decline. I've never been able to do it since this uh, performance for this young fan uh, because I really did get completely and utterly choked, choked up. I just, I, ca I haven't got the wherewithal to do it. So it is difficult and you have to learn how to be able to emote without actually physically breaking down yourself. And now, let's listen to Memory from Cats with music by Andrew Lloyd Webber and lyrics by Trevor Nunn.
Paige's voice is one of the most distinctive and impressive voices in the industry, not to mention one of the most exciting. Part of that excitement stems from the fact that she does what few singers dare to do. She manages to push her chest voice higher than what is normally possible. One noted example where she does this to terrific effect is in the climax to the song Memory. Here is Andrew Lloyd Webber himself explaining this phenomenal ability in an extract from an interview taken from a special 1996 episode of the South Bank show titled The Faces of Elaine Page. Elaine is a chest singer, and by that I mean, as you know, there are two voices that a woman has, rather like a man has a falsetto and a proper one. Um, There is a soprano voice that every woman has, and a point where they go up to a break in their voice, which is uh, called the chest voice, and... In the kind of singing that Elaine does, uh, she is taking chest singing up to a height which uh, is pushing that moment where it would turn into soprano higher than most performers would do. So in other words, what Elaine is doing is she's living very, very dangerously. And because she dares, she thrills. But if Paige's singing abilities have won her worldwide praise, her acting skills are equally impressive. Andrew Gantz of Playbill magazine wrote, Page's gift is to dissect a role and determine what phrasing, gesture or emotion can bring a scene to its fullest dramatic potential. The best word to describe her performance is volcanic, noted Gantz. When that golden voice opens, it pours out like rich lava, and the sound that envelops the entire concert hall is simply thrilling. She is also a spell-binding actress who delves deeply into each and every song. The fates of Elaine Page and Patti Lapone were interlinked again in 1985 when Page was approached to sing the role of Fantine in the original West End production of Les Miserables. At the time, however, Page had already committed to appearing as Florence in the stage production of Chess, a new musical with music by Bjorn Olvias and Benny Anderson of ABBA fame, and lyrics by Tim Rice. Her involvement in Chess meant that the role of Fantine went to Patti Lapone, who went on to win a Laurence Olivier Award as Best Actress in a Musical. 
The stage production of Chess had been preceded by a 1984 concept album, which included the duet I Know Him So Well, sung by Page and Barbara Dixon. The single held the number one spot on the UK singles chart for four weeks, winning the Ivan Novello Award in the process as the best-selling single, and still remains the biggest-selling record by a female duo, according to the Guinness Book of Records. From 1986 to 87, Page appeared as Florence in the stage production of Chess. Here she is discussing chess in an interview with Howard Sherman, recorded for the American Theatre Wing in 2010. Well, that was the extraordinary thing that, uh, you know, two or three years later, mid-80s, um, Les Miserables was uh, about to be played in, in London, and... Uh, and I was had committed to doing chess, so I couldn't do Les Miserables. What a shame. I couldn't be in two places at once. Mm. But, uh, yes, I mean, Tim came up with this original idea of chess uh, as a musical and had approached Benny and Bjorn to, to do the music, not something that they were known to do. They, we all knew them as uh, wonderful pop writers. Um, but, of course, immediately I heard uh, the demo recordings of, of the things that... Um, Benny was playing around with uh, melodically, I was hooked. And one of them was called When the Waves Roll Out to Sea. That was the working title. In fact, amazingly, it never made it uh, into the original production or the original album. Um, but it is the most wonderful operatic, again, melody. And that was the other thing that I think um, caught my attention and I knew that I wanted to be part of it uh, was a bit like with um, Superstar and Evita before. Uh, the melodies were grand on a grand scale. They are operatic and, uh, and that's what I'm always drawn to, it seems to me. And of course, to have been involved in something that um, in a way was kind of uh, reflecting my own life at the time mm. in terms of the story. Um, you know, it was a weird experience, but uh, but something that I, I couldn't not have done because uh, the, the music, the score, I think, is still, for me, and I know I'm biased, of course, but uh, for me, I still think that is one, if not the best score of the entire 1980s to come out of musical theatre. Mm -hmm. The story of chess involves a politically driven Cold War-era chess tournament between two men an American grandmaster and a Soviet grandmaster, and their fight over a woman who manages one and falls in love with the other. During the duet I Know Him So Well, two women, Svetlana, the Russian chess champion's estranged wife, sung on the concept album by Barbara Dixon, and Florence, his mistress, sung by Page, express their bittersweet feelings for him and at seeing their relationships fall apart. Here is Tim Rice theatre critic Mark Stain and Elaine Page talking about chess in an extract from a 1996 episode of The South Bank Show titled The Faces of Elaine Page. But it took time to understand the I certainly wanted Elaine to be in chess and uh, that was the one piece probably I have written with a particular star in mind. Although, quite rightly, and I remember getting quite annoyed at the time, she was very iffy about whether she'd actually do it. All Tim Rice's ambivalence uh, towards love 
um, which is something that runs through a lot of his lyrics, comes out, especially in the chess songs. Wasn't it plays uh, the mistress of a chess player and by this stage it was, it was, it's no secret it was all the tabloids she was Tim Rice's uh, mistress the public identified with the lyrics a lot of people have obviously been in that situation they identified with it, and I think that is uh, a great deal to do with its success. It obviously drew a lot on, on uh, things I'd, I'd gone through, or at least things I'd caused other people to go through. And although, you know, the, the characters on stage are called Svetlana and Florence, uh, basically everyone who was following that situation at the time thought that the characters, whatever you might call them, were really Jane Rice and Elaine Page. It was a time in my life when I did feel that art was imitating life. I suppose I felt exposed. It's not pleasant, it's horrible. Wasn't it Wasn't it and now, here is the duet I Know Him So Well from Chess, sung by Elaine Page and Barbara Dixon, with music by Bjorn Ulvaeus and Benny Anderson, and lyrics by Tim Rice.
In 1988, Paige found herself in Washington, D.C. to sing in a concert at the White House for President Ronald Reagan. She heard about the tremendous success of a revival of Cole Porter's 1930s musical Anything Goes, which had recently opened in New York at Lincoln Center's Vivian Beaumont Theatre, and which starred Patti Lepone as evangelist-turned-nightclub singer Reno Sweeney. Paige travelled to New York to see the show and was bowled over. Anything Goes was a knockout, she remembers. It has some of the best music and lyrics that anyone would ever want to sing. In addition to the title song, there is a string of classic numbers, and the central part of Reno Sweeney is a gift of a comic role, and I had yet to tackle a comedic role. I knew instantly that I wanted to do it in the West End. But how? Well, you know what they say. If you want something done, you have to do it yourself. And so I became a producer. Together with Tim Rice and Robert Fox, Page decided to co-produce the show in the West End by securing the performance rights to the American production and thereby ensuring that she, as opposed to Patti Lepone, would sing the role in London. Here is Page in an interview with Howard Sherman recorded for the American Theatre Wing in 2010. Now I'm fascinated that we've been talking about rock musicals, new musicals, you saw Anything Goes, the Lincoln yes. Center production in the 80s starring Patti LuPone, and said, I got to do that. Oh, it was wonderful. And you not only played Reno Sweeney in the West End, but you produced the show. What prompted you to say, I need to produce this? Was <laughs> it to ensure that you got to play the part? You said it. That's absolutely it. Absolutely hit it right on the head. I saw that production here. Wonderful Jerry Zach's production. Patty was wonderful. I loved it. I just thought it was the most fun, uplifting piece of musical theatre comedy, true American musical theatre comedy. And I had never, ever done anything like that. I dipped my toes into it with Sandy Wilson's The Boyfriend and uh, so on, but never really uh, had played anything like that. And I 
I loved it so much, I wanted to play Reno Sweeney. And I, the only way I knew that I would be able to guarantee that for myself was to produce. And so I talked to Tim about it and Robert Fox, who was a, is a famous producer in London. And uh, amazingly, they saw the show and said, yep, we think that is... And it was truly a wonderful show. And so lock, stock and barrel, we managed to bring the entire creative American team to London the West End revival of Anything Goes opened at the Prince Edward Theatre on July 4th, 1989. For Paige, the role of loud-talking, no-nonsense Reno Sweeney was a double challenge. Apart from the fact that she had seldom done comedy before, she had also rarely sung the kind of belting songs that Anything Goes demands. You have to find a way to sing those songs night after night without losing your voice, she said at the time.
the title song there from Anything Goes, with music and lyrics by Cole Porter, as sung by Elaine Page. In 1993, Page appeared as French songstress Edith Piaf in Pam James' musical play Piaf to tremendous critical acclaim. The Guardian, for example, stated that Page was a magnificent, perfect Piaf. Here is Page in a 2009 interview with Alex Belfield, recorded for Celebrity Radio. Pam Gems had written this marvellous uh, play, basically, that had smatterings of music in it. And uh, I read the play and just couldn't wait to turn the page. Excuse the pun. Uh, but uh, I couldn't wait to see what happened in the end. I didn't know everything about Edith Piaf's life at the time um, but having read Pam James's play I knew that I I wanted to play her and so I bought the rights to to the uh, play and held them for five years something like that and uh, found myself a producer found myself a director and uh, and managed to therefore play the role and um, so that was something that sort of fell in my lap, really, through a suggestion from somebody else. And now let's listen to Hymn to Love, one of the very many songs made popular by Edith Piaf, as sung by Elaine Page, with music by Marguerite Mounon, original French lyrics by Piaf, and English translation by Eddie Constantine. Suddenly run dry If you love me Really love me Let it happen I won't care If it seems That everything is lost I shall smile And never count the cost if you love me, really love me, let it happen, darling. I won't care. Shall I catch a shooting star? Shall I bring it where you are? If you want me to, I will. Set me any task I'll do anything lost If you'll only love me Still Well, at last Our life on earth is through I shall share eternity
Piaf required Paige to sing 15 songs, some in French, and to be on stage for 2 hours and 40 minutes each night. The production took its toll. Piaf was a hugely taxing role to play, noted Paige. Not only did I have to grapple with her despair from the age of 15 through drugs, alcohol, the pain and angst of lost love, and the physical pain of a broken jaw, but also arthritis, leading to her premature death at 48 in 1963. I had to die every night. Her lifestyle killed her. Playing her life nearly killed me. Suffering from exhaustion, Paige was forced to leave the show early. It was awful, and I vowed to myself that I would never ever push myself to the edge that much again, she later stated. Let's skip ahead again to Sunset Boulevard, which you did both in London and here in New York. Um, famously, Patti LuPone played the part originally in London. Glenn Close originated it here in New York. Um, you ended up succeeding Betty Buckley in both cities. Um, you told the story about not wanting to understudy. At this point in your career, why were you willing to replace? Uh, Andrew had asked me to uh, replace, I think, uh, Patty here, not here, in London. And uh, I had conversations with him about it. And I, at that time, uh, had my set sight to play PF. I, I had um, read the script uh, of uh, that play and uh, really was desperate to play it because it was the most wonderful acting role and, of course, all that marvellous uh, music. And we should say, a revival of PF, the original production, I think, was around 1980. It was 1978, the same year that I opened in Vita. Jane Lapater played it at mm. the National Theatre. And uh, it hadn't been done really since and uh and i was looking for something meaty to to you know get my teeth into and uh and since i hadn't been asked to play uh, uh, norma desmond in sunset boulevard i thought well now's the time to to do pf and so i bought the rights to the pam gems play and um had meetings with Peter Hall, Sir Peter Hall, and he said he wanted to direct it. And so we were off and ready and up and running with that. And uh, so when uh, Andrew asked me if I wanted to, to replace, I said, well, actually, I've made the decision and I'm going to be doing PF. So I was already ensconced huh. in that and I had, I had uh, started to record an album of PF music and so on, you know, th those wonderful French songs. So... It was off limits, really, for me. And anyway, they hadn't asked me in the first place, so I was, let's face it, feeling a little bruised, I, I suspect. Mm. Um, so that was that. And then a long time later, after Betty Buckley had already come over and taken over the role from Patty on the West End stage, she fell ill. And yet again, I received a help phone call from mm. Andrew and about this because... Betty was going to have to be in hospital for several weeks over the Christmas period and um, clearly I think Andrew was concerned over that period of time uh, that an understudy would be able to, you know, hold the show together over Christmas and asked me then, which is I had just finished playing PF. So the timing now was right in a way. I hadn't got anything to do. And, and he also he was asking me just to do it for a finite space of time to play something for six weeks, such a wonderful role. Uh, 
you know, would have been, I would have been mad not to have played it. I mean, I knew I had seen it. I was there to, to see the first night, Patti LuPone on the first night, and thought the score and the storytelling and it was just the, and the set and everything about it. It was the most glorious show and so faithful to the, to the film as well. I mean, you know, and all those wonderful songs with one look, which, of course, I had sung at his wedding to Madeline um, Gurney, his uh, third wife. Um, I'd sung at the wedding breakfast that very song. Of course, at the time, it wasn't called With One Look. It was called One Small Glance, or as you would say, One Small Glance. But One Small Glance is not quite easy to sing. And so uh, somewhere down the line, it got changed to With One Look and, of course, uh, became the wonderful aria that it is, that first aria in the, in the piece. Mm. And again, it was of op operatic proportions, this music. Very me. And... Um, as I say, I'm waffling now, but he, he, it was a finite space of time. So I thought, you know what? I've got nothing to lose. I know I want to sing this, this wonderful score. And, and I haven't got to be in it for eight shows a week for, from now to, for another year, which psychologically for an actor is quite, that's a big undertaking, you know? Mm. And especially as I had, luckily for me, experienced that uh, before with other great shows, you know, that I've been very fortunate to play. I was less probably now, and I was tired after PF, you know, that nearly killed me playing her. Hmm. Um, so emotional, do you know what I mean? So I was at a period in my life when I was being a little, perhaps a little bit more choosy about uh, spending long periods of time in the theatre. Yeah, but following PF with Norma Desmond is not a walk in the park, no matter how long no, a run you do. No, look at all those do. stairs. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> that was my first it's consideration. <laughs> Page there in an interview with Howard Sherman, recorded for the American Theatre Wing in 2010. As Norma Desmond, Page won over London critics with a performance that not only rings out every ounce of dramatic action, but delivers some unexpected humour as well. She took over the part full-time the following year and won the Variety Club Award for Best Actress. Near the end of her West End run in Sunset Boulevard in 1995, Paige discovered a lump in her breast, prompting her to consult with her doctor, who at first reassured her that there was nothing to be concerned about. She returned to the doctor twice and was subsequently sent for tests that confirmed the lump was cancerous, nine months after she had first discovered it. I knew there was something wrong for nine months, but was being told that everything was okay, she recalled. It was only when I eventually put my foot down and said I wanted a second test that it was discovered I had breast cancer. Despite having an operation and radiotherapy, Paige did not reveal her condition to anyone in the cast except for her personal dresser. She also remarkably did not miss a single show. I kept going and gave my most marvellous performances because you suddenly realise how vital life is, she noted, and when I did the show, I became very emotional. Some of the lyrics suddenly took on an entirely different meaning. Words like, as if we never said goodbye, became more real. Five years of medical treatments and radiation followed, yet Paige remained quiet about her cancer, only revealing it in an interview in 2004. Today she feels it's important for her to share her story, and in her own words, to tell women that if you really believe something is wrong with you, to get out there and get tested.
Cancer is the most awful thing that's happened to me in my life, she remarked. It changed me. But as a result, I made time to see friends, and I made the conscious decision to worry less about work. In 1996, Page transferred to the American production of Sunset Boulevard, making her Broadway debut at the Minskoff Theatre on 12th of September and staying with the show until it closed on the 22nd of March 1997. After not being allowed to perform on Broadway in Evita, Cats and Chess, Page stated of her Broadway debut, It was just the most perfect time to go with that particular show. She was furthermore welcomed to the Broadway stage with a long-standing ovation from the audience and received largely positive reviews for her New York performances as Norma Desmond. The lush sound and the pure power of her voice are, to put it simply, incredible, wrote one critic, whilst another said, Her voice has great range, remarkable clarity and emotional force. Regarding Page's recording of one of the show's highlights, the song As If We Never Said Goodbye, Andrew Lloyd Webber reportedly stated that it is the best recording of any of his songs. Here then is As If We Never Said Goodbye from Sunset Boulevard, with music of course by Andrew Lloyd Webber and lyrics by Don Black and Christopher Hampton. I know my way around here The cardboard trees, the painted seas, the sound here Yes, a world to rediscover But I'm not in any hurry In overcrowded hallways The atmosphere is thrilling here As always Feel the early morning madness Feel the magic in the making Why everything's as if we never said goodbye I've spent so many mornings Just trying to resist you I'm trembling now You can't know how I've missed you Out of makeup, 
the lights already burning. Not long until the cameras will start turning. And the early morning madness and the magic in the making. Yes, everything's as if we never said From 2000 to 2001, Page starred as Anna Leonowens in a revival of Rodgers and Hammerstein's The King and I at the London Palladium. Page had turned down an offer for the role the first time she was approached, but later accepted, admitting that she had forgotten what a fantastic score it was. She furthermore noted, I've always been cast to sing the big ballads, the emotional songs, and now here I am cast in a character that seems so very different in that respect, both in terms of the woman herself and what I'm required to do in the show. But I have to say, because of this, because it's a light singing voice that I'm having to use and the fact that I'm only singing a few songs every night and the fact that I'm not dragging myself through the hedge backward emotionally as the character, it's wonderful because I can enjoy the role without feeling absolutely dog-tired at the end of it. But if on some level Paige doubted her own suitability for the role, her casting was a shoe-in with audiences.
Prior to the show's opening, the King and I's box office had already taken in ticket sales in excess of £7 million. Of her performances, the critic for The Independent commented, It may well be impossible to be a success as Evita and a success as Anna, complaining that Paige was not refined enough for the role, whereas The Spectator asserted that the role further strengthened her title as the first lady of British musical theatre. I'd like to play you now one of my personal highlights from The King and I, the charming Getting to Know You, with music by Richard Rogers and lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein II. It's a very ancient saying, but a true and honest thought, that if you become a teacher, by your pupils you'll be taught. As a teacher I've been learning, you'll forgive me if I boast, and I've now become an expert on the subject Getting to know you. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. Getting to like you. Getting to hope you like me. Getting to know you. Putting it my way, but nicely. You are precisely my cup of tea. Getting to know you, getting to feel free and easy. When I am with you, getting to know what to say. Haven't you noticed suddenly I'm bright? Of all the beautiful and new things I'm learning about you day 
Sadly, during her run in The King and I, Paige's mother Irene was diagnosed with cancer, and as a result, Paige wanted to pull out of the show. Her mother insisted, however, that she should continue until her contract had finished. Paige's sister, Marion Billings, admitted, That was very hard for Elaine, having to go on stage night after night knowing she wanted to be with Mum. Paige next sang the role of Mrs. Lovett in the New York City opera production of Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd in March of 2004, earning positive reviews from critics. In 2007, after a West End absence of six years, Paige appeared in the ensemble musical spoof The Drowsy Chaperone, with music and lyrics by Lisa Lambert and Greg Morrison. The production ran for a disappointing 96 performances, although it had opened to a standing ovation from the audience and a generally optimistic reaction from critics. The Daily Telegraph wrote, Elaine Page is a good sport, enduring jokes about her reputation for being difficult with a grin that doesn't seem all that forced. Only the self-importantly serious and the chronically depressed will fail to enjoy this preposterously entertaining evening. Paul Taylor from The Independent was less impressed and wrote, A miscast Elaine Page manages to be unfunny to an almost ingenious degree as the heroine's bibulous minder. In 2011, Page was approached to play the featured role of aging actress Carlotta Campion in the Kennedy Center production of Stephen Sondheim's Follies in Washington, D.C., appearing alongside a principal cast comprised of Bernadette Peters, Jan Maxwell, Ron Raines and Danny Burstein. Following its run in Washington, the production transferred to Broadway for a limited engagement run beginning in August 2011 at the Marquis Theatre and thereafter at the Amundsen Theatre in Los Angeles in May and June of 2012. Being in a featured and not a starring role in Follies, albeit one with a legendary song, suited Paige just fine. I would not want to be carrying a show right now, she stated in an interview. Well, maybe I would, since this has now reintroduced me to musicals. I haven't done a musical since Drowsy Chaperone. But you know, I'm not 25 anymore, and I have always said musical theatre in particular is a young person's game. It requires energy, mentally and physically, to do it. If you are in a play and you catch a cold, you're able to muddle through. If you're carrying a musical, it's a different thing altogether. It's the great fear of any singer's life. Critics praised Paige's performance, and especially her rendition of the showstopper I'm Still Here, an anthem of showbiz survival. Ben Brantley wrote in the New York Times that Paige brought to the song a galvanizing fierceness that makes this much-performed song sound fresh and stinging, and turning it into not just an anthem of survival, but also of rage against ravaging time. Let's listen now to I'm Still Here from Stephen Sondheim's Follies, as sung by Elaine Page. 
good times and fun times. I've seen them all, my dear. I'm still here. Plush velvet sometimes, sometimes just pretzels and beer. But I'm here. I've stuffed the dailies in my shoes, strummed ukuleles, sung the blues, seen all my dreams disappear. But I'm here. I've slept in shanties, guest of the WPA, but I'm here. Danced in my scanties, three bucks a night was the pay, but I'm here. I've stood on bread lines with the best, watched while the headlines did the rest. In the depression was I. Depressed, nowhere near. I met a big financier, ha, and I'm here. I've been through Gandhi, Windsor, and Wally's affair, and I'm here. Amos and Andy, Marjong and Platinum Hair. I'm here. I got through babies, Irish roads, five dear babies, major bows, and leery jeebies for babies back to sea. I live through Shirley Temple, and I'm here. I've gone through her. Been through Herbert and Jagger, anything else is a laugh. I've been through Reno, I've been through Beverly Hills, and I'm here. Reefers, Reno. Rescues religion and pills, but I'm here. Been called a pinko, commie too. Got through it, stinko, by my pool. I should have gone to an acting school. That seems clear. Still, someone said she's sincere, so I'm here. Black sable one day, next day it goes into park, but I'm here. Top billing Monday, Tuesday you're touring in stock, but I'm here. First you're another slow eyed van, then someone's mother, then your cab, then you career from career to career. I'm almost through my memoirs and I'm here. 
gotten through. Hey, lady, aren't you horses? Wow, what a looker you were. Or better yet, sorry, I thought you were horses. Whatever happened to her? Good times and bum times, I've seen them all, and my dear, I'm still here. Plush velvet sometimes. Sometimes just pretzels and beer, and I'm here. I run the gamut, A to Z. Three cheers and damn it, they love me. I got through all of last year, and I'm here. Lord knows, at least I was there. The demands of Paige's career and her sustained success over half a century have meant she has never married. Yes, I regret in a way not having my own family, not having kids, she noted. I never imagined I wouldn't have a family. I'd have loved to have been a mum, but I'm of the belief that you can't have it all. If I had a marriage and motherhood, I wouldn't have had this career because I couldn't have juggled it all. I am quite single-minded. I love the idea of waking up and having breakfast over the newspapers rather than making idle conversation with someone. Is that such a crime? Paige not only made headlines for her performances in Evita, but also for her public affair during the 1980s with the musical's lyricist Tim Rice. Their romance lasted for 11 years, even though Rice was married to Jane McIntosh and had fathered two children with her. Things fizzled out after Rice failed to leave his wife for Paige, and both Paige and Macintosh eventually left him. But that was another lifetime ago, Paige demurs. The wedding bells idea did chime for me, but you have to remember that he was extremely married at the time, and still is, she stated in an interview, referring to the fact that Rice's divorce was filed in 1990, but has never been finalized. Since 2010, however, Paige has been in a relationship with Justin Mallinson, a marketing executive. Ever since the Tim thing she noted in an interview, I've tried to hold back, to keep something for myself and for my partner. I don't keep him a secret. He often accompanies me to first nights. It's just that he's not in the public eye and I don't think it's my place to talk about him. Here is Paige in an interview with Alex Belfield for Celebrity Radio, recorded in 2009. Is there any better feeling in the world than that standing ovation at the end? Um, that isn't the reason I do it. Um, it's lovely, of course, and that's the added bonus at the end of a performance. But um, for me, the reason that I'm doing what I'm doing is, is just that enjoyment of disappearing into playing another person, pretending to be somebody else. Um, and that is what gives me the most pleasure, uh, to be able to know that I've 
sung well for an evening and not hit any bum notes and remembered all the words and uh, you know to have been able to as I say disappear into the character that is for me the the true enjoyment and and that is the real reason I do it so um, and hope to continue to do so. In 2014 Paige embarked on a UK national tour titled Page by Page by Page that was meant as a celebration of her illustrious career spanning 50 years in show business and to mark the end of her live touring career. That same year also saw her performing a special farewell concert titled I'm Still Here at the Royal Albert Hall in London on the 22nd of October 2014 and which was broadcast to cinemas worldwide earlier this year on April 23rd. This farewell tour isn't about retiring, Page told Julia Llewellyn-Smith in The Telegraph, however. It's about stopping touring. I'm not 25 anymore, and I'm beginning to find it all too much. Julia Llewellyn-Smith in The Telegraph wrote that Elaine Page is to British musical theatre what Stalin was to Soviet Russia. Impossible to imagine one without the other. What does it feel like to have musical theatre students learning about you in their theatre history classes? John Carroll asked Page in an interview for Advocate. It's amazing, really, Page noted. When I look back at my career, I think, how did I get so lucky for all this to happen to me? I try to always remember that the elevator stops on all floors going up and it stops on the same floors going down. Of course, luck plays a huge part and I was lucky to be in the right place at the right time. I know it's a terrible old cliché, Page confessed to Richard Barber in an interview for Saga magazine, but the time has gone by in the blink of an eye. That might be because I've lived in the moment ever since I appeared in Hair. It was one of the themes of the musical, and it's a philosophy I've embraced ever since. Fortunately, even though Page may have hung up her touring shoes, she is adamant that she will still be heard on the occasional concert and will still be a presence on television and radio especially as the presenter of her own BBC Radio 2 lunchtime show, Elaine Page on Sunday, which is now in its 11th year and regularly attracts over 2 million listeners each week. Performing's the great love of my life, she stated not too long ago. Not being in the business simply doesn't work for me. Well, that brings us to the end of this edition of Great Interpreters Goes Broadway. Next Friday at 8pm here on Fine Music Radio, in the final program of the series, I will profile my favourite Broadway dame, the thrillingly larger-than-life Patti Lapone. I do hope you'll join me again then. Before I sign off, a reminder that if you missed part of tonight's show, or any of the previous programmes in the series, you can listen again on my website on and off the record, www onandofftherecord.com That's www.onandofftherecord.com You can also subscribe to the On and Off the Record podcast feed on iTunes. As I mentioned earlier in tonight's show, I'm unfortunately not in the studio to take your calls, but I would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions or suggestions. You can contact me via email at adrian at onandofftherecord.com or you can send me a message on the Facebook On and Off the Record page. Playing us out tonight is Elaine Page singing The Accordionist, with music by Michelle Imer and English lyrics by Adrian Mitchell and Pam James. From me, Adrian Fuchs, have a wonderful weekend. 
Till next week at 8 p.m. here on Fine Music Radio. Good night. Prostitute is pretty, her clients say she's clean. They use her, then they pay her the usual routine. But when her work is over, then comes her turn to shop. She finds the one she dreams of down at the local hop. Her man is a musician, he'll be a star one day. Embracing his accordion, he plays the world away. He makes music for her, but her feet never stir. With her back to the dance floor, she lingers. There is nothing she sees but his hands on the keys, such forceful and sensitive fingers. They are under her skin, going out, going in. She's about which is aching to Bursting to sing, it's a physical thing. She is in the accordion's power. The prostitute is waiting, the prostitute is true. Her lover is a soldier, and when the war is through, they'll buy a little cafe in some romantic town. The diners will respect her. She'll wear a satin gown A man will be the patron And every night she'll say Pick up that old accordion And play the night away Now she feels music rise In a series of sighs Welling up from the depths of her being And the clients who call They mean nothing at all For it's only her lover she's seen He is under her skin Going out, going in She's about which is aching to flower And she's bursting to sing It's a physical thing She is in the accordion's power The prostitute is weeping The clients pass her by The other girls avoid her Too bad if she should die. Her lover joined the army, the army marched away. And now his body's lying where no musicians lay. She wanders round the city and finds a small cafe where someone with a squeeze box will play the world Her heart's full of sound And she closes her eyes And her feet start to move And it's under her skin Going out, going in She has to escape from the music And she's starting to yell Cause it's hurting like hell So she dances to snap out the
damn music. <laughs>